The reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, increase our faith and teach us what that is. For we cling to Christ and come to you now needy and helpless, acknowledging our emptiness and knowing that you are the one who not only fills heaven and earth, but has promised to fill us with the knowledge of yourself through the scriptures which you have caused to be written for our instruction. And so open our eyes that we may perceive glorious things in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. On the 24th of May, 1738, a man by the name of John Wesley had an experience which would have a dramatic and lasting impact on the lives of tens, perhaps hundreds, of millions of Christians. Here's how he described it when he was writing about it later. Quote, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. It was actually a meeting of the Moravian Brethren, a small Protestant denomination, uh, trace its roots back to the mid-15th century, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ... I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley went on to become one of the most influential and famous preachers in the whole history of the evangelical church. He had a massive impact on evangelical piety, which still continues to this day. It's interesting, despite the fact that he professed faith in Christ for years before that, he was actually an ordained minister, he'd been a missionary over here in the, uh, what would become the United States, he dated his personal conversion to that moment on the evening of May 24th, 1738. And the reason was because he believes, or believed, that that was his first genuine experience of faith in Christ. When he felt his heart strangely warmed, he thinks that was it. That was the moment. And it's hard to overestimate the influence of this understanding of faith in the church at large. Uh, Faith has come over the years and the centuries to become associated with Certain feelings or emotions, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Faith has come to be defined almost in many circles as a kind of internal state, a feeling of warmth of the heart towards Jesus. Now, in fairness, Wesley was not the only person responsible for this understanding of faith. There are many other influential preachers around his day and since, which cemented this connection between faith and feelings. 
It's likely, in fact, that Wesley himself didn't actually think of the heart strangely warmed thing as being just about feelings. In fact, he probably saw more in it than that, but that's certainly how it's come to be understood, and that's certainly the impact it's had on us. There is a very strong, almost inarguable connection in evangelical faith and piety between feelings, how I feel in my heart, and whether I trust in Christ. We're the heirs of that tradition. It's not just in the grassroots popular writings and sermons and so on. In Francis Turretin's Institutes of Elenctic Theology, it's the title of a book, actually it's the title of a three-volume work this thick. Francis Turretin, by the way, was a European uh, reformer whom Jonathan Edwards described as the great Turretin, okay? Serious, heavy-hitting theologian. He said uh, that the feelings that necessarily follow from faith, quote, this is what faith necessarily results in, Turretin believed. That joy, tranquility, peace, acquiescence, and delight which arise from the possession of Christ and by which the believing soul piously exults and rejoices in the Lord, glories in adversity, and rejoices with joy unspeakable and glorious. That understanding of faith is everywhere. It's certainly here in the American Christian church, the evangelical church. We're heirs of the first and second great awakenings where this is what was expected and encouraged and taught. Deep down, it is very hard for us to shake this feeling <laughs> that faith is all about feelings. And I have two initial comments to make before we get into this. The first is that it's not entirely wrong. Like many misunderstandings, we don't want to dismiss it completely. It's certainly true that many of us, perhaps most of us, from time to time have strong emotional feelings connected with our faith in Christ. I'm not wanting to deny that. I'm certainly not wanting to deny the reality of Wesley's experience. There is an internal aspect to faith and often an emotional aspect as well. But nonetheless, this poses significant pastoral problems. This can cause all manner of trouble. It's, um, as one scholar once said, it's like those misunderstandings that contain just enough truth to do damage. Because they're plausible enough to gain traction and to shape people's lives and thinking. Because think about it for a second. Your feelings are inherently subjective. Your feelings are transient and up and down. and They depend on what the guy was like at the traffic lights in front of you on the way to church this morning. They're not, if, if we're going to connect our faith in Christ too strongly to the subjective internal changing feelings we have... We're going to have all kinds of problems with assurance for a start. I mean, what happens to my assurance of salvation when my mood goes up and down? And all of this raises a fairly potent and obvious question. So here I am asking questions about this contemporary understanding of what faith is. And we all recognize it, don't we, to a certain extent? One way or another in our upbringing or in what we've heard or what we've read or what we've come to think, we think of faith as to do with how a person feels. Well, what is faith then? If faith ought not to be equated with, I felt my heart strangely warmed, well, what is it? And I want to answer that question tonight with the help of our friends, the Thessalonian Christians, and Paul's second letter to them, 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Just let me remind you of the background, and we talked about this at some length last week, so those of you who, who were here will, will remember, those of you who weren't. Uh, basically, Paul and his companions visited Thessalonica in what is now Greece on their second, on Paul's second missionary journey. And he preached the gospel, and the church was founded in quite a short period of time, and then through various things that happened. There was some persecution and hostility and violence arose. He was forced to leave and he became concerned on his subsequent travels about the the health and the strength of that church. And so he sent messengers back and when he heard that they're doing okay, he wrote 1 Thessalonians to them and then he subsequently wrote 2 Thessalonians, probably just a few weeks later. So this is the second letter that Paul the Apostle is writing to this church, been in existence for a few months at most, to encourage them. And what he does in the first three of, uh, first, um, a few verses here, verses three and four, he begins, as he often does, with a prayer report. He tells them and tells us what he's praying for them. It's very interesting because what that tells us then is what he thinks is um, good. If he's thanking God for something, as he is here, then what that means is he thinks this is something worthy of thankfulness to God for. So this must be a good thing. And what does he pray for? Look at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to you, brothers, as is right. Why? What is it that he sees or hears about in the Thessalonian church that's so wonderful? Your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So their faith and their love he regards as exemplary in some respects. Certainly, I thank God for the faith of these people. Because if their faith was flaky and shaky, he wouldn't be thanking God for it, would he? I mean, you go to Galatians chapter 1, you notice there's not much... um, prayer of thankfulness being reported there. You foolish Galatians, is how he begins there. So when he starts like this, we know they're doing something right. So what are they doing right? They're doing faith and love right. So that's a clue, isn't it? If Wesley's wrong, and I'm going to suggest that he's at least highly distorted and selective, there's much more to faith than my heart strangely warmed, then what is faith? And I, what is love? And these verses here, I want to suggest, can tell us what it is. And I want to cut to the chase Uh, On your orders of worship, you'll see the title for today's sermon, which is, and I quote, Faith Ain't Touchy-Feely. I thought that might help you to remember it. Um, I've never seen the word ain't on an order of worship before. (laughs) But there you are, you're never going to forget, are you? And I've never said the word ain't in a sermon, because that ain't right. But now I ain't not, never not done that thing. Anyway, so that's it. Faith Ain't Touchy-Feely. If you forget everything else, you can remember that. But there are two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about their faith mostly, and then we'll get to their love. What was it about their love that was so exemplary? Because that's great too, and that's not to do with feelings either. So let's jump in. Okay, their faith, Paul says, look at me, you've got your Bibles, and I don't want to encourage you. Some of you regulars, maybe you know the Bible off by heart, but uh, bring your Bibles to church, because you'll find all kinds of little details as we're going through this uh, text and the readings and so on. Their faith is growing abundantly, is what it says in verse 3. Now, what does that mean? Well, The word translated growing abundantly is a very rare word. It's only found here in the New Testament. It's actually a compound of two words. It's like hyper-growing. It's literally the Greek preposition hyper, hyper, hyper-growing. Your faith is hyper-growing. And the word growing is found elsewhere. It's in Luke 12, 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. So it's an organic plant that's growing. It's how the, the, what the verb means. And it's applied metaphorically to the church by Paul. Actually, it's kind of interesting. The church grows in that kind of organic way, like a plant grows in Ephesians 2.21. It grows into a holy temple, and in Colossians 2.19, it grows by the power of God. The body grows, and so on. 
And hyper, well, Paul often makes these compound verbs with a hooper or a hyper at the beginning. It means like superlatively. It's like in Texan English, people say, I'm super excited to move to Texas. Yeah? You know, you realize that not everybody in the English-speaking world speaks like that. Sorry. Um, but, but we all recognize, you, you recognize how the word, how the, the compound works. So that's how it's, how Paul uses the term here. So probably, actually, that we could go off on a rabbit trail here. He's probably picking up all of the organic imagery for the people of God from the Old Testament. If your faith is growing like a plant, well, there are plants which are like the people of God under the Old Covenant. Vines, Isaiah 5. The righteous man is like a tree, Psalm 1. And so now you're, you were growing as the people of God under the Old Covenant, but now you're hyper-growing in Christ because you've been grafted into the vine who is Jesus, Romans 11, John 15, and so on and so forth. So that's what it, you're, you're growing, you've been grafted into Christ, and you're growing, your faith is super-growing, hyper-abundantly growing. Right, now this gives you the first clue that Paul does not think that faith is all about emotional experiences. It's just somewhat implausible, isn't it? I thank God for you all that the intensity of your emotional experiences is increasing all the time. It's just it's not like the sort of thing that Paul would say. It's actually not the sort of thing that is possible, if you think about it. For your, I thank God that you feel more and more strangely warmed every day. It just doesn't seem to make sense of... It certainly doesn't make sense of the Thessalonians' situation. It doesn't really make sense of how Paul thinks about the Christian life. Paul doesn't think about the Christian life as what happens is you start with these warm fuzzies and emotional heart strangely warmed and it just keeps getting warmer. You boil over eventually. I don't know what would happen to you. Blow a fuse or something. So what does he mean then? When he says your faith is growing abundantly, what is faith? Well, actually, it's interesting. The word for faith, you start the New Testament for a second. The word for faith, pistis, get used to that word because I'm not going to keep saying the Greek word for faith. I'll just say pistis, it means faith. Pistis actually means two things. First, it means the familiar internal disposition. Faith is often how it's translated. And uh, Reformed forefathers uh, made some distinctions here. They said there are three elements to it. Actually, Turretin said there are six elements to it. Typical Turretin, he was seeing details where nobody else does. But the, 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 the faith aspect of pistis is knowledge, assent, trust. Knowledge, I know what the Bible says about Jesus, says he's the son of God. Assent, I agree that he's the son of God. Trust, I'm depending upon him. There's an existential disposition towards Jesus. I'm acknowledging him and I have, and that can have an emotional element to it. It's certainly true. And perhaps that's what Wesley felt. And so faith in systematic reform theology has often been kind of dissected into those three elements. It's you know something is true according to Scripture. You believe it. I agree. I believe that God raised him from the dead. And I'm trusting that he will one day raise me. Knowledge, assent, trust. That's what faith means. But there's a second element to the word pistis. It doesn't mean just faith. It means also something like faithfulness. Fidelity. Commitment, allegiance, steadfastness in cleaving to somebody. In other words, it's about external actions that flow from a commitment of your will. And our Bibles, of course, they, they, 
it's a t- I'd never take a job as a Bible translator because you've got to kind of pick one or the other. And it's hard when it could mean either or it could mean a bit of both. But what our Bibles tend to do is always to translate it as faith when often something like faithfulness is meant. So, okay, so a new challenge for you all. You've got to now read the Bible in a year, right? Well, you've, many, many of you, are re- you don't have to read the Bible in a year. I didn't mean to say that. I retract that. But you, many of you are reading the Bible in a year uh, or reading the Bible just generally. Well, Every time you come across the word faith, you've got to ask yourself, could this be more to do with faithfulness than faith? Is it more to do with actions and commitment rather than what's in my heart? And it's very interesting. When you start to look at it, you find that there are examples in Scripture, in the New Testament to begin with, where it's very plainly the case that faithfulness is in view. The the most obvious examples, like there's an example in Romans 1, Um, Turn to it if you like, we don't need to. In Romans 1, there's a quotation in verse 17 from the prophet Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith, it says. Well, that word faith in Habakkuk 2.4 is emunah in Hebrew, which doesn't mean faith at all. It means faithfulness. That's just what it means. So Paul is quoting from a text where it says, he who, uh, the, the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. Really in Romans 1, 17, that's what, that's how we should understand it to be. Now, it probably includes faith when you think about what faithfulness would require. It's hard to be faithful to somebody if you don't trust them, yes? But there's an example. Uh, another example where you've got um, uh, the summary of Jesus' ministry at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Um, I'll read uh, Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and pistuo. It's the cognate verb to pistis. Repent and have faith. Now, what does it mean? Well, what's he just said? He has said, the culmination of all the ages is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's at hand, which is a way of saying, I'm the king. Now, here's the thing. What do you owe to a king? What do you owe to one who says, I'm the Lord of heaven and earth, the ruler of the ages, the fulfillment of every promise of rule in the name of God that has ever been made? What do you owe to a divine ruler? You do not just owe intellectual assent and trust. You owe allegiance. You're being enlisted in his army and you need to do what he says from a disposition of trusting him, of course. But... Be faithful and repent. Can you see the difference? That's very likely what is meant by Mark 1, 14 and 15. Uh, You can find some of this if you're interested in reading it. It's been going on in the background of theology for a long time, but Matthew Bates wrote an interesting book a few years ago called, okay, here's a provocative title for you, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Yeah, can you see what he's doing? And it's actually making a very, very good point in the title, that the faith that saves is faith that shows allegiance and commitment to the one it has faith in, namely Jesus Christ. You get the same in Romans 1, 5. The obedience of faith is probably the obedience that is the outcome of your commitment to Jesus. So when we're looking at these words, and we get back to 2 Thessalonians now, it's not that it always only ever means faithfulness, commitment, allegiance. It's not that it means it everywhere, but it's that it could mean it, and it might mean it here. So look at the context of 2 Thessalonians. What's actually going on in 2 Thessalonians? Well, just look at the text. Go back with me, verse 3. We thank God for you, as is right, because your pistis, 
whatever that is, faith, faithfulness, is growing abundantly. The love that every one of you for each other has for each other is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for all your steadfastness and pistis. It's about standing firm, isn't it? It's about remaining committed. In all the persecutions and afflictions you're enduring, what Paul is so excited and thankful to God for doesn't, certainly doesn't look like, oh, you're all great, you're so emotional in all your afflictions. You know, it's not, it's not that at all. It's, you guys are standing firm. You guys are remaining faithful to Christ in all your afflictions. Actually, the phrase translated steadfastness and faith, um, uh, New Testament Greek is a, is a subtle way of hinting that two things are actually one thing viewed from different angles. What it does is it, it connects them with just one article. So it's the steadfastness and faith of you. It's why you've got in Ephesians 4, pastors and teachers. There's only one article there as well, which is why pastors and teachers are probably one way, two ways of describing the same individuals. Here, steadfastness and faithfulness. Steadfastness and faith, that's what Paul means. Which is why he highlights it's all the persecutions and afflictions. It's not at all obvious how being persecuted would cause you to change what you believe. It just might cause you to go underground and pretend you didn't. And Paul thanks God that they are remaining faithful when faithfulness is costly. It's actually, you get the same thing uh, highlighted in the uh, previous letter, just I'll mention this briefly, where Paul uh, calls attention to some of the historical context that led him to write this letter um, you know that I mentioned before the church was founded through affliction in Second Thessalonians, in First Thessalonians, sorry, chapter three. Like he's uh, he sent in uh, verse two to establish and exhort you in your pistis, so that nobody will be re- moved by these afflictions. He wants to establish them so nobody's rocked by the persecution they're experiencing. A few verses later, verse seven, when he hears about the Thessalonians, what he says is. In all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your pistis, for now we live because you're standing fast in the Lord. What's the pistis? It's not just what they believe in their hearts. It's that they're standing fast, they're solid, they're resolute. It's faithfulness, it's allegiance, it's steadfastness, it's fidelity, it's loyalty. It's actual lived-out commitment to Jesus Christ. That's what faith is, certainly here. That's what Paul thanks God. Your faithfulness is growing abundantly. That's why it can keep growing, super growing, super abundantly growing. Illustration. Uh, Think of your friends, perhaps perhaps a close sibling, a a close friend, a spouse. And think of an illustration. Does your relationship with them grow over time? Well, of course it does. And often it grows... Um, among husbands and wives particularly, through the experience of hardship, yes? It's not... <laughs> nobody... I, could, I tell you, when, I, when Nicole and I... Um, I don't know how to describe the start of our relationship, but I can tell you, when I realised... When, when her friend came to... I'm sorry, babe. <laughs> her friend Liz came and told me, she does like you. I'm like, yes! I, I tell you, like, the, the abject... I, well, I went to the library of the college we were at because I thought, I'm not going to go see her now. I'm going to play it cool. 
so you see what I can figure out what to say. So I go to the library, spent three hours working. I tell you what, I produced the most unutterable garbage during those three hours. Because my head was like, Man, if that grows, I'm just blown a fuse after three days. Actually, what happens is that the emotional intensity of a relationship declines, doesn't it? I mean, no, have a, there'll, there'll be subsequent peaks, you know, date night or whatever, and there'll be ups and downs, but it's, what's interesting is that your, your relationship keeps growing because of the hardships you go through together. That can keep growing. So, you men, I hope you would say, I love my wife now more than the day we were married. Because your relationship has deepened and intensified because of all the hardships of raising all those kids, for example. Or, or other things that you've been through. That can intensify super abundantly. That's, Paul looks at the Thessalonians and he says, man, I remember when I first preached the gospel to you, you were jumping for joy, and now you're shedding tears because you keep getting beaten up in the streets and you've been fired from your jobs and you know, you're wondering whether you have to leave the city because of Jesus and you're standing firm. I thank God for your faithfulness to him. Now this is tremendously, tremendously important, just pastorally and practically, because the simple fact is, uh, you are wired, all of us are wired differently. And if you run away with the idea that the genuineness of your faith is to be determined by the intensity of your emotional feelings, I can tell about 30 you are doubting your faith already. If I said you have to have your heart strangely warmed in order for you to be genuinely saved, is your heart strangely warmed now? Well, maybe it is. I mean, I don't know. I hope so. I want us to be moved by the word of God. But let me tell you, tomorrow morning, like I said to the men, the men's discipleship breakfast yesterday, when you, you know, drag yourself out of bed and there are too many fours and fives on the alarm clock again, you don't feel like, oh, my heart is alive with a song because of Jesus. It's like... <laughs> but tell you what, that's faithfulness, isn't it, to Christ, by you get up and go to work because you've got to provide for your family. That's faithfulness. So what you really say, do you feel now all that stuff that Turretin described? Joy, tranquility, peace, acquiescence, and delight. Well, yeah, maybe, but not all the time. And let me reassure you, you're still saved, even when you don't. I mean, this is why pastors boast. Let me tell you this. Um, Paul says this kind of awkward thing, doesn't he? Verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Well, okay, so sometimes in the Pauline corpus, in Paul's writing, sometimes boasting is bad, sometimes boasting is good. Same word, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. That's confusing, right? Well, uh, when it's negative, it's boasting in your own achievements. When it's positive, it's boasting in what God is doing in other people. Basically, that's what's going on. And Paul says, we boast in all the churches we go to about you. Well, why does he boast? Let me tell you. Pastors don't boast about their congregation's squishy feelings. When the pastor's gathering, Pastor Neil organised this wonderful pastor's gathering for the men in our presbytery um, uh, just this last week, the pastors in the, about 14 of us or so, um, and sitting up late into the night exchanging stories about what the Lord is doing among the people. There wasn't a single person there saying, I tell you what, my congregation is more gushy than ever before. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? No, but it's like, I, I boast, oh, I boast about Pastor Neil, who... You know, lays down his nice two or three night 
away break with Pastor Booth where he could just relax and chill out and turns it into yet another opportunity to mentor and encourage younger pastors. Well, there's a surprise for you. I'm embarrassing you now, brother. I'm sorry. But, but I boast about... I tell you what I'll boast about. I'll boast about the young man who's, you know... This is the first time he's been in church in months or years. And he's conscious that he... Oh, I, I don't really feel like I belong here. And what Pastor Neil said during the invitation to, to confession, yeah, it's like, I'm not even sure I feel safe in the sense that, is everybody judging me? Let me promise, we're not judging you, or God help us if we are. But I boast, I would love to boast at the next pastor's gathering about the fact, yeah, that young man, he came back, would you believe it? And he, you know, he's, he went and he did whatever it was necessary to get rid of that porn habit, and he still has a beer occasionally, but he drinks about one-tenth as much as he used to. And he loves Jesus, and he's faithful. I'll boast about that. That's what pastors boast. That's what Paul's boasting about here. And especially, this is the thing, like, are those times when you experience doubts about your faith? Ever, is that, does this resonate with anybody, or is it just me? <gasps> Gasp, the pastor? Yes. Right, here's the thing. Where do you look? Now, of course, we, we want to say, well, we look to the objective signs of the covenant that God has given us. God is going to feed us on Christ later, and God has welcomed you into the church in baptism. I don't care if you can't remember it. You can't remember the day of your birth either, but you've been washed, and so you've been welcomed into this community of the people of God. But there'll be times when you doubt. You, and you, I, I was reading the screw tape letters again because I, I mentioned a few weeks ago a number of us have said, yeah, we want to read the screw tape letters and some of you are doing it and we're going to get together. I'm going to email you soon. I haven't done it yet about a time we're going to get together in the summer. There's still time to sign up. Send me an email. Say, Pastor Jeffrey, I want to read the screw tape letters and come around and have a beer with you and talk about it. Big group of us, one day in the summer. But here's what, you remember, you know the screw tape letters. It's advice from one devil to another about how to tempt people away from God who they call the enemy. You remember that famous ending to one of the letters? Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do the enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's when the devil's cause is in danger. You ever done that? You ever looked around the universe and it looks like all trace of God has vanished, and you ask, why, why have I been forsaken? Does that remind you of anybody, by the way? Just so you know, you're not the first person to ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're in good company. So their faithfulness is growing abundantly. First. Second, briefly, promise, uh, or briefer, their love is increasing. You see that. Just look at the text again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's this. Just as faith could be misunderstood, so love could. Love, perhaps even more than faith, could be misunderstood in, in terms of um, you know, just emotions and feelings. And you're used to hearing, I hope, pastors and preachers tell you love isn't just about feelings. And the Thessalonians will remind us of that as well. What's intriguing here, where it says the love of every one of you for one another is increasing, Paul is deliberately quoting himself. Because back in the first letter that he wrote, he explained that 
he's praying that their love would increase. And now in the second letter, he says, I thank God that your love is increasing. So he's prayed for this before. He told them he's praying for it. And now he's saying, I thank God that it's happened. Now, go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter, sorry, 1 Thess 1, verse 11 and 12. This is where, the, this is where he does the prayer report. It's really interesting because what it does, it'll, it'll tell us what the love is if you look closely. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make your love increase and abound for one another and for all. Can you see that? So that's the prayer he prayed. Now, so what does that love involve? Well, Paul is going to tell us. Look here. What does he say? There's two things that just jump out at me from this. The first, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts gushy and emotional. No. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the love will be shown. You know how love is shown according to this? It's love is shown in the disciplined self-control of a man or a woman who, what does he say? Verse, chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's love for one another. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. See, holiness, that's love for one another. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So you see, what he, it's just kind of striking. You, how do you love one another? By controlling your ungodly sexual desires. I mean, you love your spouse. You love the spouse you haven't yet met or married. You love the community that depends on you. you know, that's how you control, that's how you show holiness. And that holiness is how you show love for one another. You see, it's deeply practical. And maybe you want to call one of your pastors and say, hey, I'd, I'd appreciate some advice about the practical things that I could do as an expression of love. Because I want to grow in holiness, especially this kind of holiness. Because I want to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's one thing he's saying. Of course, there's something else here in verse 12. Just chapter 3, verse 12 again. 1 Thessalonians 3:12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Now, isn't that intriguing? He's praying that they'd continue to love not just the people within the congregation, but all. And it raises a question, doesn't it? I'm going to finish with this. Well, in what way or ways does Paul anticipate the Thessalonian Christians showing love for other churches? Christians elsewhere. Well, the one obvious answer, which is what everybody thinks of, I guess, when they're reading this, is the collection. They've already been held up uh, in Second uh, Corinthians 8 as the example of generous giving for the churches in Jerusalem who are suffering famine. So that's one way. But there's another way, and I didn't get time to do this um, two or three weeks ago. To talk to you about my new hero of the New Testament, a man called Aristarchus. Aristarchus, I want to submit to you, is the manifestation of this congregation's love for other people. And I want to conclude with this and I'll show you what I mean. Aristarchus is mentioned in Philemon 24 as one of Paul's fellow workers and it seems that he joined Paul during the second missionary journey. That is the first time Paul rocks up at Thessalonica and there's this guy there called Aristarchus and he's converted and he says, you know what Paul, I think, I, could I be useful? And he's like, yeah, you and the rest of them. He said, well, can I come with you? 
And we know that he went with them because in Acts 19, he's in Ephesus, which is early in the next missionary journey, the third missionary journey. And he's with Paul. In fact, he's, he's one of the guys who was dragged into the theater. Remember when all the stuff kicked off with all the, the little monkey shrine um, silversmith things and, they, and Demetrius got upset and said, right, come on, let's get a mob together. And they dragged him in the theater. And, you know, well, Aristarchus was with Paul then. And he continued with Paul on that third missionary journey. And guess where they ended up with towards the end of that third missionary journey? They ended up back at Thessalonica. And you're thinking, well, he's been with Paul now on the whole of the second half of the second missionary journey and the whole of this long first missionary journey. And he's been through quite a lot, hasn't he? They're ready to be torn apart by lions in the theater in Ephesus and a whole bunch of other things. Okay, so what's he going to do? What's the temptation? He arrives back at his home. He's not been there for five, seven, eight years. His family's there. Maybe his wife's there. All his friends are there and his church is there. What's the temptation? You can imagine the conversation. Or the, or the conversations late into night, like in the pastor's gathering, about all the wonderful things the Lord has been doing. Oh, there was this time when we were in Ephesus and Paul's preaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus and we got dragged into the theatre. We thought that was the end and the Lord rescued us again. And you get to the end and, and, and Aristarchus' friends are like, oh man, I don't know how Paul's ever going to manage without you. And Paul's like... Yeah, no, neither do I. And he looks at Aristarchus, and Aristarchus looks back at him. It's like, <sighs> yeah, I think I'd probably need to carry on, don't I? Because faith ain't touchy-feely. <laughs> faith is commitment. Come on, Paul. Let's go. You know, at the end of the book of Acts, Acts 27, at the shipwreck, specifically mentions Aristarchus was with him on the way to Rome. In Colossians 4, he's in prison with him, very likely in Rome. Because there's a man who understood that love and faith are about steadfastness, they're about commitment. In the end, they're about following a man who laid down his life for his friends. Let's pray. Merciful Father, thank you for shaping our thoughts and our minds. Shape our lives, we pray, in faithfulness and love and commitment of which we need not be entirely ashamed when we stand before you on the last day in the company of our elder brother, who gave everything for us. We pray in his name. Amen.